Our scripture reading is from Jeremiah 1, 11 to 19, and this text is found on page 627 in the Bibles in front of you in your pew. Again, if you don't own a Bible, please take one as our gift to you. Jeremiah 1, 11 to 19. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and all their evil around in all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them, for all their evil is in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise, say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. Uh, we are so glad that you're here with us. My name is Bill Gorman. And I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and we're continuing in a series we just began last week uh, in the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, as we continue to look at Jeremiah chapter 1, I'd invite you just to pause with me uh, to pray and ask that God would continue to speak uh, to us afresh through this passage that we're going to look at this morning. God is always speaking, and we want to ask now that we would hear. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you have not only spoken, but you've recorded and preserved your word for us. And I just pray now this morning that you would give each of us, uh, myself included, ears to hear afresh uh, what you are speaking to us, uh, that we would be sustained and challenged um, and nourished by your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, what do you see? That's the question of this text over and over again. But seeing can be a tricky thing. So I want to start off and just ask you, what do you see in these pictures? So what do you see here? Do you see the front of a man's face or the side of a man's face? Which did you see first? Hey, show of hands. Did you see the front or the side first? Front? Do you see the side though, right? You can look at it and you see both, the front and the side. Okay, what about this one? In this picture, who's holding the magazine in this picture? Is the man holding the magazine or the woman? This one took me a moment to get. Believe it or not, it's, the, it's such an optical illusion, but the, actually it's the man who's on the couch holding the magazine and the woman who's behind with her arms around. 
Uh, okay, one more of these. What do you see? Do you see men leaning against a wall or men laying on the ground? Now, let me flip it for you. See, right? They're actually laying on the ground. You see the people in the corner there walking down the steps? Seeing can be a tricky thing. What do you see? This is one of the central questions of life. What do you see? When you look around at the world, what do you see? The great uh, Jewish Bible scholar Abraham Herschel reminds us uh, with this question, are we merely seeing what we know or are we truly knowing what we see? So often in life, we tend to see what we think we already know rather than truly seeing what is there and knowing that for what it is. You see, depending on our personalities, our backgrounds, our culture, whether we consider ourselves religious or non-religious, When we look around at the world, we see very different things sometimes. We may look at the same set of circumstances and and see men leaning against a wall or men laying on the ground. What do you see? When you look at disasters and evil, uh, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Jose, the, the shooting in Las Vegas, what do you see? When you see uh, places in stunning beauty, Yosemite Valley, Zion National Park, uh, love in the world, a mother holding a newborn baby, what do you see? Do you see randomness and chance, order and design, desperation, hope, meaning, absurdity? What do you see? Well, in this passage this morning, what we discover is that Jeremiah needed to see something, and so do you. What do you see? This is the central question of this second half of Jeremiah chapter 1. You see, Jeremiah, he was a prophet. uh, That is someone who was called uniquely by God to speak God's words to God's people, and in the case of Jeremiah, also to the surrounding nations of God's people. And the book of Jeremiah, it's, a, it's an anthology, it's a compilation of Jeremiah's speeches and sermons and visions, um, even poems and stories about Jeremiah's life that have all been compiled into one book. And all of this was written down and recorded so that when God's people ended up in exile, which is what Jeremiah predicts all through the book is going to happen, they're going to be taken away from Jerusalem, their home city, to the foreign land of Babylon. So all of this is recorded so that those people who are in exile in Babylon would understand why they're there and how to live faithfully in that time of exile. Because people leaving in exile, they they need to understand how they got there and they also need to be reminded that God is still in control, that he's not abandoned them. And in one sense, Christians believe that all people are in exile that we live outside of the world for which we were designed. We live outside of the Garden of Eden, this picture of the world as it ought to be. We live in a world that is not as it ought to be. So how do we live in exile? Jeremiah gives us insight in this. In a world that is marked by, yes, beauty and joy, but also by so much sadness and evil, how do we live? 
And in exile, I think there are at least two temptations that are always sort of just lurking, whispering to us. The first temptation is to give up, to look around at all that's going on in the world, the trouble in the world, and conclude in despair that there's nothing that can be done, nothing will really get better, God doesn't really care, the temptation to give up. There's another temptation, though, that we face, and that is the temptation just to fit in. To say, it's too much work to live this this life of being different than the people around me. I'd rather just fit in. We're tempted to either give up or just to fit in. And I feel the pull of both of those temptations in my own life. Either to to give up, it's not going to get any better, or just to fit in, I'm just going to go with the flow. And these are temptations that Jeremiah faced in his life, we see. They're temptations that God's people would face in exile, and they're temptations that you and I face. So what do you see? Our passage this morning is made up of two visions and a promise. Two visions and a promise. And what we discover in looking in this passage is that God's people living in exile, waiting to see God's promises fulfilled, whether that's in Jeremiah's time or in our time, that we need to see three things in order to not give in to those temptations to give up or just to fit in. So let's take a look. Again, Jeremiah needed to see something, and so do we. And so God shows Jeremiah a vision. Now, probably most of us aren't regularly receiving visions from God on a regular basis as part of Jeremiah's unique call as a prophet. Um, And this is not an uncommon way for God to communicate with his prophets as you look throughout the Old Testament. And we don't know exactly what that experience of receiving the vision was like for Jeremiah. Uh, He just tells us what it is that he saw. And here's what he saw in his first vision. Look at verses 11 and 12. And as I read those verses for us again, notice two things. Notice one, the emphasis on God's word in this verse, and also the emphasis on this language of of seeing. So verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, um, I love almonds. They're one of my favorite snacks. I often have a little container of almonds and raisins at my desk. Uh, But apart from making me hungry for the almonds in my desk when I first read this verse, uh, I was pretty puzzled by what it meant. What's this almond branch doing here? Why is this significant for Jeremiah? But this is actually one of the things that I think I love most about reading the Bible is that every once in a while you come to some of these passages and you're reading and you, and you just scratch your head and you have to dig in and find out what's, what's happening here. And this is also one of those moments in Scripture where we realize acutely uh, the reality that while the Bible is most certainly written for us, that it's not in the first instance written directly to us. Uh, Jeremiah is a 2,500-year-old document written in ancient Hebrew to a people living in a very different culture than us. So it was first written to those people. It's written for us, but it's not written directly to us. And so we would expect that as you read, especially um, these Old Testament documents and poetry, that you're going to come across things that don't quite make sense on first reading. We've got to do a little digging. So what's going on here with this almond branch. Well, the almond branch was the first tree to bud in the spring. In fact, it could begin budding as early as January. It's the first sign that spring is coming. 
that the promise of what has been given in spring and summer is, is on its way. There's also a wordplay happening here in the original language. And the translators in most Bibles actually point it out for you because it's so significant to understanding why an almond branch. Uh, so if you look in one of the pew Bibles or if you have your own Bible open in front of you, uh, even in, in a Bible app, you'll probably notice that on the word almond, there's a little footnote. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, the translators just give you a little heads up. They say almond sounds like the Hebrew word for watching. So there's a wordplay happening. God asks Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see an almond, a shocked branch. And he says back, good, you have seen correctly, Jeremiah. I am watching, I'm shoked over my word to perform it. Shocked and shoked. There's this wordplay, almond and watching, that's happening. Probably at this point, most of you are like, okay, Bill, that's some great Bible trivia. Thanks for that. Um, That was a fun lesson. But still, I don't, what does this mean? Why is God showing Jeremiah this branch? Well, in the previous verse, in verse 10, God had told Jeremiah that he was appointing him to proclaim a message of uprooting and tearing down, of destroying, demolishing, and also one of, of building up and planting. Jeremiah's role throughout the next Uh, 40 years of his life that's recorded for us in this book is going to be proclaiming this message of God's justice and grace. And what God says here with this vision of the almond branch is that the fulfillment of Jeremiah's words will be coming soon, just as the almond branch budding is the sign that summer and spring will come. So God is watching over his word to perform it. It will happen. It will take place. He's watching over to accomplish it completely and fully. God is assuring Jeremiah that even though his message will be unpopular, and for many people that he's speaking to, inconceivable, it's inconceivable that that Jerusalem, the city that, that God has made his own, would be overrun and destroyed, that even though the vast majority of people he will speak to won't believe him, that nevertheless God will accomplish what he said, that he's going to do it, that he will fulfill his word. What do you see? Do you see a God who keeps his promises? Do you see a God who is true to his word? See, the first thing that people in exile need to see in order to keep from either giving up or just fitting in is we need to see a God who is true to his word, who will do what he says. A God who, on the one hand, is personal enough to make promises. People, persons make promises. We have a God who is personal. He makes promises to us as people. A God who is personal enough to make promises and powerful enough to keep them. Do you see a God who is true to his word? Because the first thing that Jeremiah needs is not a vision of the future, but a vision of God himself, who he is, his character. And we do too. But in the busyness and frankly even just the ordinariness of everyday life, it's easy to forget. We tend to forget. It's easy not to see. Not to see that we we have a God who is always true to his word. And that's what the almond branch became for Jeremiah. It became a reminder. Jeremiah spoke God's word for 40 years. So 40 springs he watched the almond branch bud. And each time it was a reminder. 
a reminder to see a God who is true to His Word, to see that He serves a God who is true to His Word always and who will accomplish it. So what are those things in your life, these sorts of almond branches that remind you, that when you see them, they remind you of God's promises and His faithfulness? One of those things for me has become meals. The simple act of of eating a meal multiple times a day. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, He taught us to pray, Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And I've tried to incorporate, whether aloud, if I'm praying out loud with a group of people or even just silently to myself as I prepare to eat a meal, to say, God, thank you for hearing and answering my prayers for daily bread. Each meal is a reminder of God's answering a prayer for daily bread, providing for my, my needs multiple times throughout the day. So in that way, even my little snack of almonds in my desk becomes an almond branch, a reminder of God's promises, his faithfulness, his provision. But there's still more we need to see. So take a look at the second vision that Jeremiah has. And it begins in verse 13. And the vision here, it's quite a contrast to the first. Jeremiah, in the second vision, sees this roiling, boiling pot that's ominously tipped towards him and his people. And again, the vision begins with a question. Jeremiah, what do you see? This is verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And then the Lord saw, said to me, out of the north shall I be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. Disaster shall be released. God is going to bring judgment on his people, the people of Israel, who are referred to in this passage as Judah. And maybe you're wondering, okay, uh, what's the difference between Judah and Israel? Why, what is this language of Judah here in this passage? Well, if you remember from last week, if you are with us, we talked a little bit about the history of Israel. And for a while, there was a bunch of the tribes just living in the land. But then under King David, they were unified into a kingdom. But after David's son Solomon passed from the throne, the kingdom was split into two pieces. You had the northern part of the kingdom, which was referred to as Israel, and the southern part of the kingdom, the southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah. And the northern part at this point in the story has already been taken over. It's already experienced God's judgment. And what God is saying here in this passage is that time is coming for the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, to experience this justice from God also. Now next week we'll see in detail just exactly why God is bringing such harsh judgment on the people of Judah. But we get a few hints here even in this passage. Uh, notice verses 15 and 16. This is God speaking. He says, For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north. These are the nations of, of Babylon and, and all these nations of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and everyone shall set up his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Again, this would have been inconceivable for God's people that these enemy nation would come and conquer Jerusalem against its walls all around, against the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them, against God's people in Jerusalem. Why? For all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and they have worshipped the works of their own hands. 
This is why the judgment is coming. For generations now, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, God's people have rejected and abandoned uh, God and they have abused one another in terrible ways. God is now bringing judgment and justice. I don't miss that. Because there's actually two things even happening in the midst of this, this justice that's coming. All the nations, the kingdoms, these are going to come. But ultimately, it's not just them doing it on their own. That's what we see. They're, they're coming. That's the first thing that's happening. But God says, I'm the one making this happen. He says, behold, I'm calling the tribes, the kingdoms. There's always two things at work. Yes, these nations are coming. They're doing this. And yet God is saying, but this is part of my plan. Nothing is out of his control. What do you see? Do you see a God who will right all wrongs? Uh, There are two things for us to see here. The first thing is that God's judgment is also an expression of his mercy. You see, part of the way that God sets all wrongs right is that he brings into our lives the consequences of our sin and our rebellion to wake us up. And that is an act of mercy. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in his book, Running with Horses. He writes, speaking of this pending war that's coming on Judah, he says, the war would interrupt their inane, distracted, their soiled and silly lives and force them to attend to what is essential and eternal, life and death, God and humanity, faith and faithlessness, covenant and obedience. It wakes us up. But the second thing we need to see here is that God does not do evil, but he contains it and he uses it for his good purposes. And we get glimpses of this even in the vision of the, itself with this idea of the pot. It's clear that God is going to tip over this, this pot representing this judgment that's coming on the nations, this, all this coming on them. But notice it, it isn't a sea of uncontained evil. It's a pot It's contained. It's controlled. You see, evil is not ultimate. Evil's not equal to God. We don't live in a universe where there's two equally powerful forces, good and evil, who are locked in an eternal struggle. No, evil is contained. It has a beginning and it has an end. God is in control, ruling over it, working out his plan in spite of it. I think few people have captured this more powerfully and emotively than J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the author of The Lord of the Rings, in his book, The Silmarillion. So if you are not familiar with uh, this, he wrote The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien did, but he also wrote a lot of other books around and about this kind of universe of Middle Earth. So um, if you let me geek out here for just a moment, let me introduce you to The Silmarillion. Well, The Silmarillion is the story of the creation of the world of Middle Earth in which the stories of the Lord of the Rings take place in. And Tolkien imagines the creation of this world happening through the playing of the music of this grand orchestra of these heavenly beings. And the music is directed by God, a creature named Iluvatar in the story. And at first, as the orchestra begins to play Iluvatar directing, there's harmony and wonder and delight in the music. And it's all beauty. But then one member of the orchestra, Melkor, the evil one, 
he begins to play his own music. He tries to take over the song, but he can't. Every time he, he introduces discord, tries to take the music in one direction, Iluvatar incorporates it and resolves it into a greater musical theme, more beautiful than before. And the Sagin concludes with these words of Iluvatar, God proclaiming the futility of the evil one's attempts to usurp. And this is Tolkien writing in this kind of King James style English. He says, And thou, Melkor, the evil one, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can alter in any the way the music in my despite. For he that attempted this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful which he himself hath not imagined. God is saying to the evil one, try as you might, you cannot spoil the music. And all of your efforts will in the end only make it that much more beautiful. Yes, evil is real and it is terrible, but it will not win. God will set all things right. Do you see? Do you see it? It can be easy to forget this. To forget that God is the one ruling over it all. Why? I think because God's rule is governing from our perspective is always slow, it's invisible, and it can usually have an alternate explanation if we want to see one. But we can't afford to forget. If we do, we will cower in the face of evil, we will be overwhelmed. Don't believe the lie. Evil will not win. It is not ultimate. It is finite, it is contained, and it has an expiration date. What do you see? Do you see a God who will right all wrongs? So in order to remain faithful, to avoid the twin temptations of giving up or fitting in. We have to see a God who is true to his word. We have to see a God who rights all wrongs. But there's still one more thing we need to see. We see it in verses 17 through 19. And in these verses, God again makes a promise to Jeremiah, the same one that he made to him last week. And that is that I will be with you. Verse 17, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. But you, Jeremiah... Dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them, everything I commanded you, do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make before you this day, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and all the people of the land. These are all the people that are going to come against Judah or come against uh, Jeremiah. And, and God says that I'm going to make you strong against them. He says they will fight against you, Jeremiah, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. See, in contrast, Judah... Jerusalem's gates will be overthrown. Their walls will be knocked down. But Jeremiah will be a fortified city. 
He will be an iron pillar. He will have bronze walls. And all that the people will speak against him, um, all that they will come against him, all the ways that they'll try to sideline him, even to, at points they want to kill him. As Jeremiah declares God's words of both justice and grace, judgment and hope, no matter how much they try, they will not prevail over Jeremiah. Why? Because God is with him to deliver him. What do you see? Do you see a God who is with you to rescue? This is the same promise that God merited to Jeremiah the week before when we saw this. They, uh, I'm with you to deliver you. They will not prevail over you. And it's the same promise. The same promise that God made to Jeremiah is the very same promise that Jesus makes about the church which he promises to build. 2,000 years ago, Jesus makes this bold promise of which you and I sitting here today, part of a local church family, are a fulfillment of. Jesus says, I will build my church, my assembly, my people. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is with us to rescue us. He has promised that not even the gates of hell will stand in the way of what he is going to do in and through his people, the church. Evil will not have the final word. But we also need to remember as we think about what is it for God to deliver us, that there are two aspects of God's rescue. And the first aspect is that God often rescues us by preserving us in the midst of trouble. Don't miss that. For 40 years, Jeremiah would speak God's word. And for 40 years, Jeremiah would suffer. Sometimes he's known as the weeping prophet because of how much suffering he witnessed and how much suffering he himself experienced. You see, sometimes, even often, God's rescue does not look like him taking us out of difficult circumstances, but rather providing the strength and the grace to be sustained within those empowering us in the midst of those circumstances so that the, those things don't prevail over us. God doesn't promise, Jeremiah, I'm going to rescue you by taking you out. He promises, Jeremiah, I'm going to be with you to rescue you by making you an iron pillar who's going to withstand in the midst of all this trouble and suffering. But if, if we only see rescue as God taking us out of difficult circumstances— being removed from trouble, then we will often miss all that God is doing to preserve us in the midst of trouble, to use us in the midst of suffering for his glory and for the good of the world around us. So yes, sometimes God's rescue looks like preserving us in the midst of a situation that we would rather not be in, in one that we might be praying regularly for God to take us out of. And often his answer is, I'm going to give you the grace, the strength, the empowerment to withstand and not be overcome in the midst of that. But God does also promise that he will finally deliver us from all trouble, that he will make all things new. You see, evil really does have an expiration date. Its fate is sealed because Jesus has defeated it on the cross. We began by looking at this first vision that Jeremiah had, a vision of an almond branch, 
a branch that was on a tree that was a sign that judgment, that justice was coming soon for God's people. But now as Christians 2,000 years later, we can look back at the tree of the cross as an almond branch of God's judgment that has already fallen on Jesus. He has climbed the tree of God's judgment and justice and received what we deserve so that we might be set free. So now we have the cross as our almond branch, reminding us of God's faithfulness to his word, a testimony to his unfaltering justice, and a monument to his gloriously wonderful rescue and his promise to be with us always. What do you see? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us the ability to see, to see through the eyes of faith what you are doing in our lives, what you're doing in the world. As we see that more clearly, would you strengthen us to not give in to the temptations of giving up or just fitting in? We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.